Hello and a very warm welcome to The State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and change makers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. To help keep you all in the loop, let's begin with this month's news roundup. I'm really pleased to welcome Lee Peart to the State of Our Nation News Roundup. Lee is Editor-in-Chief at Caring Times, a publication who focus on the opinions of the social care sector, reporting on news from the public, private and not-for-profit spheres. Hello, Lee. Hi, Carrie. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Lee, we've started the year with a seemingly uphill battle for the social care system. And this discussion will focus in on the latest news and what you think 2023 has in store for the care sector. So let's take a look back then. On the 1st of January, the Archbishop of Canterbury called for action on a broken care system in his New Year address. I'm really curious to hear your reflections on what this suggests for the severity of the crisis in social care and what you think we can expect in the forthcoming report. Yes, Carrie. Um, Yeah, obviously, it was interesting that the Archbishop raised this in his address. It obviously reflects the severity of the crisis and the crucial role that social care plays in caring for the vulnerable. Um, In his address, the uh, Archbishop called for a joint solution from families, communities and government, reflecting how social care permeates all parts of society and the fact that a lasting solution can only be found with the input of everyone. I think the forthcoming report will reflect this need for a solution involving all parts of society. I also expect the report to focus on the need for a greater appreciation of the care workforce and to stress the need for the elderly and vulnerable to remain an integral part of the community and not be marginalised or forgotten. Which, of course, would be really important for congregations all across the country. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England have really zoned in on social care as a issue of our time. And um, do you have any further reflections mm. about that, Lee? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's obviously it's always on the agenda now. It's Everyone's very much aware of it as a big issue. Um, obviously, we'll get on to the NHS later, but it's obviously a key part of society. And it, it, it's good that the um, the message is getting out there, how crucially important um, the sector is. And hopefully um, that will make it, uh, as long as it stays at the top of the agenda, there's more chance of something being done to fix the problems obviously affecting the sector. With such a busy news agenda, it has been quite difficult, I think, for social care to cut through over the last few months, in particular with the with the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis. But one of the issues that has cut through is the issue around problems with people not being able to be discharged into the community from the NHS, from hospitals. We've, we heard just recently that the government has announced this adult social care discharge fund. Um, and, and the thought is that the NHS will buy thousands of extra beds in care homes using that fund. It's quite an interesting response. To, um, and, and there's been some chat around the use of hotels as care homes. Again, I'm, I'm just really interested to hear your take on that, Lee. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We, we've heard about the hotel issue. Obviously, um, 
I think being primarily suggested in the southwest, I think Bristol, Cornwall and Devon area are looking into it. But I think obviously the fact that it's got to that stage obviously is not a good reflection on the desperate state of the current system. I mean, vulnerable people should be cared for in an appropriate setting and care homes should be that setting and they really should be funded and staffed so they can do this um obviously the nhs crisis it's it's another reflection of the sh- short-termist approach of government to health and social care and to appreciate a failure to appreciate that you can't have a healthy nhs without a healthy social care system the two are obviously dependent on each other um a large part of the nhs crisis is down to the fact that patients have nowhere to go as you've uh, mentioned and um, due to lack of care p- packages and the recruitment crisis in social care with 165,000 vacancies currently. So to have a, a lasting solution to the NHS crisis, we need to have a lasting solution to the crisis in social care, or we'll just continue to lurch from crisis to crisis. And that's um, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, lots of places are talking about that discharge fund covering four weeks mm. of discharge into a care home. And yesterday, speaking with um, chief executives from across the sector, and there's a really significant level of concern that what, you know, and lots of questions over what happens at the end of those four weeks. Are we creating a, another problem, actually, or just? Kind of, kind of pushing that problem down the road for weeks, and then you've got another another issue with with people who might be very poorly or might have very complex needs having to move twice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's obviously a very short termist approach, and um, as you say, obviously my background's in care homes, but obviously the other side of the equation is getting people back home and getting the domiciliary care staff and looking after people in a community care setting, and obviously that there's real problems in getting the, the staff out there with the funding and, and getting support in people's homes. I, I see that the NHS are starting to look at possible uh, remote care in people's homes, but that obviously needs to be supported by adequately by social care workers as well. And um, obviously in the current situation, that that's just not going to be doable to, you know, to, to the right right degree, really. So later in this episode, we're really going to be um, honing in on the social care workforce and the current crisis surrounding recruitment and retention that you've just touched on there. We know that it's impacting upon um, domiciliary care, on supporting care homes and in supported living. Um, and a lot of it relates to pay, as you've just um, you, you've just highlighted there. So the Telegraph has actually reported that Rishi Sunak has been told the care system is at risk of collapse without pay parity between the care sector and the NHS. What has to happen now, in your view, to ensure that we protect and value the lives and livelihoods of those working in the social care sector? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, as I've spoken to many carers and they say that it's about uh, your values and your passion for care, and that's that's the main reason that they're in, in in the business. But obviously, they do need to be paid adequately. You can't have a situation where care workers are being paid less than supermarkets. It's uh, frankly ridiculous, really, that that is the situation. And society is not valuing the care workers to be paying them a decent salary, really. So... There was an interesting report out recently from Community Integrated Care called Unfair to Care, and that called for support workers to be put on the same wage level as their equivalent in the NHS, Band 3. 
um, which would mean a pay rise of fully eight thousand um, pounds. So that that gives you a um, idea of the sort of level of the gap between the social care and NHS workers in terms of their wage recognition and and sort of their general sort of appreciation in, in society. I guess so I think we need a complete recalibration of the societal value of care workers, and obviously this has got to be reflected in appropriate wages. Um, we need to have a long term workforce strategy which offers fair wage levels, good training and qualifications and career pathways and social care. And obviously the immediate I think the immediate thing is to is, is to increase the salaries. To, to way above the minimum wage. Thank you. And yes, I'm, we're, we're looking forward to hearing more about that report from Community Integrated Care later in the podcast. One of our, our guests um, able to give us quite a lot of detail into that. So thank you, um, Lee. I'm, I'm just uh, for us to sort of wind up this chat. I'm really curious to know what you think we should be looking out for in the coming weeks when it comes to the news and social care. Um, interesting that the um, local government are due to uh, submit the results of their cost of care exercises to government in, uh, next month. And it'll be interesting to see how the government, if the government responds to this, uh, considering that they've just delayed the reforms by two years. We also, other issues, we have the resumption of the uh, COVID-19 public inquiry in England and ongoing in Scotland. Um, so it'll be interesting to see um, how that goes and, and, and what sort of um sort of progress we get on that and how far things can change and whether we you know really sort of addresses the big issues that we saw during covid in scotland is an interesting obviously because there um we we can keep an eye on the uh, progress towards the national care service uh, that they're aiming to um introduce in 2026 which is another really uh, interesting uh, topical issue in terms of looking at how this can be achieved and um any particular implications, potential implications for for the English care system as well from this. And obviously, uh, in the background, in terms of digital technology, we're seeing good progress towards the uh, digitization of care plans by March 2024, 80% digitization. And we expect to see further good progress on that. And we'll be keeping a a good eye on that in um, Caring Times, working with NHS Digital. Fantastic. Thank you. That's a really brilliant summary and lots of interesting stuff to forward to there. Um, Of course, we've got the March statement coming up quite soon and it'll be really interesting to see um, people's submissions for that, particularly in the context of the Association of Directors of Services um, saying in their their latest survey in in December that 94% of directors are not confident they've got the workforce or the resources to so thank you. Thank you so much for those um, those interesting tidbits for us, Lee. And thanks so much for coming on to the podcast this month. It's been really brilliant talking to you and um, I'll hopefully have you on again soon in the future. No problem, Carrie. Nice to speak to you. Hopefully that gave you some more insight into adult social care in the news. As you can see, we're facing great uncertainty and it's vital that charities like ours exist to support those struggling to meet their social care needs. Keep listening as I will now be chatting to another inspiring guest about their work or experience within the adult social care sector, asking how and why we need to see changes in the system.
Hello and welcome to the State of Our Nation podcast. This month, we will take a deep dive into the social care workforce crisis, looking in particular at research published by Skills for Care, as well as research published by Community Integrated Care. And I'm delighted to welcome Teresa Exelby from Community Integrated Care and Una Smith from Skills for Care onto the podcast this month. Una and Teresa, Hello and welcome. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Carrie. So, Ona, as the Chief Exec at Skills for Care, can you give us a quick introduction as to how you came to work in the social care sector? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the organisation vision and mission at Skills for Care. Thanks, Carrie. So I started in my career um, thinking I wanted to go into law uh, and um, working my way through with governance in charities, strategy in, uh, in charities. And then I have a master's in human rights law. So I moved into equality, uh, mostly disability uh, equality policy. And then I brought all of those together in, uh, in, in MENCAP and worked on governance policy, all things um, strategy. Um, and so obviously Mencup is a large social care provider and that was uh, probably my, it was my first professional experience of social care, although I had done some volunteering work during my A-levels with adults with a learning disability. Uh, and Skills for Care, I'm in Skills for Care now, uh, I started just at the beginning of the pandemic, so March 2020. And Skills for Care is the workforce development charity for adult social care in England. And we work with employers across the, the country to think about um, how we get more people into the sector with the right skills, what qualifications people need, what behaviours, uh, so that we can make sure that we're providing high quality and, and person-centred care. And one of the, the things that we do, which I'm sure we'll speak about today, is the, the data set that we have, which covers a, about half of the social care workforce. And that combined with our local and our national presence and our um, knowledge and expertise around qualifications and skills and capacity, we join those three things together, really, to, to support that workforce development role. That's fantastic. Thank you, Ona. And I should say for full disclosure, I had the absolute pleasure of working with Ona at Mencap, where she was my line manager. And um, I learned an awful lot from her. So thank you for, for coming and joining us again today, Ona. So Teresa, welcome. And can you tell us about your role at Community Integrated Care? Yeah, so um, I don't have any of Ona's credentials at all. Um, I spent 20 years in retail working in all kinds of different functions, but particularly supply chain and manufacturing and logistics, and then latterly moved into the people team. And I think kind of after 20 years in the same sector, I just really fancied something else that was big and complex. And I definitely found it in social care. Um, yes. But similar to where I started in January 2020, having never worked in a charity and never having worked with social care before. So I joined Community Integrated Care and we provide support for about 3,000 people um, across Scotland and England, predominantly um, working age adults who have a learning disability or autism. Super, thank you. And um, could you start us off um, then on our subject of today? We'd like to hear a little bit about the Unfair to Care report that you've, um, that you've recently been involved with at, at Community Integrated Care. Yeah, so I guess unfair to care 
was created from my first day in social care where I went straight into a service and having never worked in that environment before was met with a buddy who told me all about her job and what I could expect for the day and how it was going to go and the people that she was supporting and kind of by lunchtime I was feeling quite overwhelmed and because the complexity and the skill of what she was doing was kind of way beyond anything I had naively imagined and I guess having spent 20 years looking at jobs across three other sectors I just felt like there was something adrift it didn't quite make sense to me because what I was seeing played out in front of me was a much much more skillful knowledgeable task than those I had previously worked with and um, in kind of frontline roles and yet I knew that the pay was below those that I'd previously worked with and it and it just didn't quite add up anyway six months into the charity and I contacted Corn Ferry who are the international leaders in job evaluation and I asked them whether they would come and take a proper look at this job to I guess understand whether I was you know feeling a bit emotional about all of all that everyone had been through with COVID or whether there was truly something wrong with how, how we viewed this role and so Corn Ferry worked with um, nearly 100 colleagues listening to their jobs what they did and they measured the the knowledge, the problem solving, um, and the accountability of those jobs, as well as looking at the physical, emotional, and environmental demands. And so they used their own independent framework to apply points to the role of a support worker. And that then gives us the ability to read across any sector and find jobs that are the same size. And so we were particularly interested in jobs within the NHS, Uh, jobs within other local authorities and public funded organisations and charities. And that really was where that first unfair to care report came from. They, Conferry also have the benchmarking data so we could see what the gap was between what people in social care were earning and what people in the equivalent size role within the NHS charities and local authorities were earning. And that was pretty staggering and we launched it and then we did it again a year later Um, And that's really what we've just published. And that shows us that people in social care would need a 41% pay rise to take home the same amount of money as their equivalents in the NHS. And I guess that's kind of the the headline of the research that we've published. Absolutely staggering. So thank you for that introduction, Teresa. Ona, do you want to come in? Can you tell us, give us a little bit more um, scene setting, if you like, and perhaps tell us about what you as the Chief Executive of Skills for Care would like our listeners to know about the social care workforce and perhaps give us a little bit more of an explanation around the current workforce challenges facing the social care sector? We all know and anybody who's come into contact with social care knows that social care is a fundamental part of, of all of our communities uh, across across the whole of the, the UK. It supports people to live their lives every single day. What we don't often talk about is the fact that there are more people working in social care than there are working in the NHS, bigger workforce than the NHS, and it makes up 5% of all roles in England. Uh, more people than work in construction, than work in hospitality. And 
that offers so many rewarding careers with uh, loads of different jobs, anything that you can think of for such a large sector. And we also know that while social care is spoken about as a often a net cost to society, it actually adds more than 50 billion to the economy in, in England every single year. And so it's a, it should be a really strong player as a, as, as a workforce and as a sector. But we know that there are challenges. The, the biggest challenge is recruitment and retention. And that's really clear. So the data from our data set, which covers about half of the half of the sector, shows that on any given day, there's about 165,000 vacancies. And for the first time ever, and we've been collecting this data for about 12 years, the workforce last year shrank, even though demand was growing. And that was down to fewer people starting in social care. So a 7% drop in new starters. And then when we start to look to the future, we're going to need about an extra half a million people working in social care by 2035 if nothing else changes. And as well as having 165,000 vacancies every day, we're going to have about uh, a third of the workforce retiring in the next 10 years. And so uh, what that gives a sense of is we've got a short-term issue today. We can't get enough people working in social care and we have a longer-term issue because we're going to need many more people in the future. And as well as having a lot of vacancies, we have a, a very high turnover rate. So 29% turnover rate and two thirds of people who are leaving jobs in social care within the year are moving around within the sector. And so that's obviously there's a lot of energy goes into that. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of cost goes into that. And we do have solutions. Uh, we know that pay makes a difference. We know that recognition, training and development, we, we know what some of those solutions are. But at the minute uh, that it, it feels really, really challenging just to get enough people into the sector to do the roles that help people live their lives and to keep them. Thank you. And that's really clear. So, Teresa, um, back to this issue of pay then. The Prime Minister recently refused to answer whether he would work in a care home for £18,000 a year. Can you tell us what that suggests to you about the state of adult social care and the workforce and how it's viewed by government decision makers? Yeah, so I think firstly, I was delighted to hear the Prime Minister ask that question by Laura Koonsberg at the BBC and, and the BBC have helped us launch the research. So it's really heartening that that is making, you know, that that level of programme and that level of interest. I think when we examine the government's and successive government's record of under, underinvestment in social care, I guess the most complimentary assessment would be that they don't really understand the essential role that it plays in society because absolutely as owner has just said it's an economic enabler it promotes independence and therefore economic viability and um, it preserves the dignity of people and of families it prolongs life and it's an essential cog in the functioning of the nhs so you know within the world's sixth largest economy it feels like a fundamental human right that should be absolutely realisable for us. And the crisis that we see now makes us believe that the government do just doesn't understand all of these facts or aren't willing to face into them. And, and there's definitely a misconception because at the last Tory conference, um, one Conservative MP said that because only a small percentage, so he believed 15% of the public would ever need social care, it wasn't a pressing issue kind of 
for him or for the for the party to to solve. And I think you know that rubs absolutely against what owners just explained around the size of the workforce. And as we all know, it's something that most of us will need at some point in our lives. And then the final bit is this complete misconception about the skill required within social care and the sense that, you know, the NHS will deliver clinical and complex work and that social care is much more around basic and administrative tasks around personal care. Um, And I think that just fundamentally misses uh, the demands of the of the work that is done within social care and, and as well a real shift over the recent decades around the technical and the clinical requirements um, that people within social care are expected to deliver to support people directly uh, with with the care that they that they need and expect. So a real issue then around the recognition of the value of the work and the comparative value of the work with the Absolutely. NHS. Was there anything else that you wanted to add bet- um, to that issue? You, you sort of outlined how the unfair to care report describes that role of a support worker as being very clearly technical and emotional and physically demanding and skilled. Um, but we're still seeing that 41% pay gap between social care and NHS. I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to add there to why you think that is? Um, I, you know, I think it is, it's come about because of political, historical, economic issues, you know, over the last probably 20, 30, 40 years and, and the makeup of the workforce. And, uh, you know, it it's immoral um, where we are today, but it actually logically doesn't make sense either. Um, and I think we are, as a, as a nation, spending much more money than we need to in all of the ways that Ona described around recruiting people and the churn and people people moving around because organisations haven't got the capacity to do things as they would want to do them because they are every day firefighting this constant churn of people. And and that is a it's a huge waste within the sector and that the whole thing needs to be really rethought so that we can we can spend money wisely and and effectively and, and reduce that level of firefighting. So Una, let's zone in then on the data. So is there any evidence about the impact that this lack of pay parity has on the care workforce? And and what's the wider result of these problems? So there is evidence. We know that social care is incredibly sensitive to local labour market fluctuations and and changes. Uh, And one of the biggest impacts on vacancy and turnover is the local labour market. And that's linked to, to... being able to compete on pay and terms and conditions. That's not to say that pay is the only thing that matters. Uh, we know that culture, leadership, development uh, retains people, but there is a, the evidence is really clear that uh, there's a direct correlation uh, between pay and turnover particularly. And the reality is we have only four choices to, ha- to grow capacity in social care. We can keep recruiting the same people that we recruit now, so more likely to be older women who have some caring responsibilities or women with a health and social care uh, qualification. And that's wonderful, but we don't have enough of them. We can attract new demographics, men and younger people, uh, but we need to do something different in order in order to do that. We can radically change terms and conditions or we can recruit from abroad. And the reality is we probably need to be doing a bit of all of, all of them, given the importance of social care in the future. Um, 
at the minute, four out of five jobs in the economy pay more than jobs in social care. And when you look at average pay of a care worker compared to a healthcare assistant, a healthcare assistant who starts today is paid about one pound an hour uh, more than somebody who's been working in social care for many years. And that's, uh, that pressure's uh, getting uh, worse with the cost of living impact where people are having to make different decisions. And the wider impact on the sector is that we're just not able to attract the number of candidates that we need to fill the, the vacancies, never mind increased demand. And when we take that right back, uh, that's sometimes it sounds quite depersonal but the or impersonal, but the, the impact of that is that it's affecting people's lives and the care that they that they get that they get now uh, due to the, the shortages in staff. And so we we definitely know that pay has an impact and and, and what an organization does has has an impact as well the culture the leadership the, the the development providers ability to invest in development all of that is is all part of this picture too but the we know from the evidence that we have to make care more attractive in order to get more people in and to stop them leaving Thank you, Anna, for pulling it back to the to the people who actually require the support there. And that's definitely something we see here at Access Social Care. Some of the cases do relate to problems with staffing services. And, and we see quite upsetting situations where people are having people that they don't know assist them with personal care or different people coming in each day to assess them with personal care. And sometimes um, services just not really struggling to staff the services to a point where they're safe. And that can impact on people's ability to live a life where they can actually leave the home and go out into the community. Um, so people's life choices are being affected. It's definitely something that that resonates for us within our casework. So Teresa, what action do community integrated care ask the government to take to help resolve this deepening crisis? So social care providers cannot change this without the government investment to enable fair pay. I think that some new research showed that 80% of social care providers say that contract income isn't enough to just cover wages. And so that presents a real threat to the quantity and the quality, as you've just described, of future social care provision, not just where we keep people safe, but where we enable kind of ambition and personal goals um, and excitement and citizenship uh, for for, for people that we support. And so with so many care provider CEOs um, telling us that there's likely to be an increase in the number of unviable contracts um, being handed back to local authorities, we really are on a, I think, on a precipice in terms of what is going to happen. So, you know, the three things that we have absolutely urged the government to do is to firstly provide an immediate and fair pay rise to all frontline support workers so that they are on the same terms as the NHS agenda for change. So that would give them that pound an hour that Ona just talked about. I think secondly, then having a set of fair and objective pay benchmarks for all social care roles, because whilst we absolutely need to focus at the front end and on the front line, we also need to consider the career progression of people within social care and what that means to be a manager in social care, what that means to be you know, a regional manager, a registered manager, and a whole career trajectory and a career pathway for people. And I guess that links then into the third point, which is a, a much wider workforce strategy 
that makes social care a viable, respected and sustainable career in the long term and one that people, a whole broad demographic of people can really consider because it is the most amazing and rewarding career that I, you know that that I've ever come across and we really really need to be able to sell that to people and on that positive note Ono do you want to come in and just tell us what you would say to people that might be considering social care as a career uh, so I, I just echo what what Teresa said. Working in social care is is rewarding. It's inspiring. Uh, it gives opportunities with a, a whole range of roles that people might not even think about: uh, community connectors, technology, uh, occupational therapy, rehabilitation. Um, and, and as integration continues, we're seeing new new roles emerge all of the time. So care navigator, social prescriber, enhanced care worker, and and I think there's there's something about the reminding people that this is secure employment. Adult social care is a growing sector and that's not the case with all sectors. With an ageing population people are, are living longer and demand for care is going to remain to remain really strong. And I think that's quite compelling for people, as well as then the the personal uh, drive. You know, people can make a difference to somebody's lives every single day. Someone with a learning disability, dementia, autism, physical disability. And uh, as adult social care services are growing and changing, there are so many opportunities for people to grow and develop and change with it and so much innovation. And and I think if I was uh, thinking about a a new role or or moving roles, I think all of that would be quite compelling. Indeed. So, so just to wind us up with our chat today, then, Ona, um, I'm, I'm going to end with the question that I ask all of my guests. To improve the state of our nation, what one thing do you think would be the biggest game changer to the social care sector? So I, I think we definitely need to change the narrative around care so that society values people drawing on social care and value roles in, in social care. So talking about what uh, social care does, its value to society and, and not just uh, hearing about social care in relation to the NHS as some sort of storage solution, um, but actually as something that empowers people. And from a policy perspective, uh, we need to implement the initiative set out in the the white paper, People at the Heart of Care. And that includes workforce planning, a workforce strategy and thinking about how we put that uh, the infrastructure and the foundations in place that were that were set out in that in that white paper. So I think I, I think I, I I cheated and got two there. <laughs> Maybe a few more, but we'll let you off because they were all good. Um, Teresa, over to you. The same question. There is so much to do and it's so exciting, actually, um, and, and deeply inspiring. But if we start to pay our people properly, so many more of the challenges we face will become so more easily achievable. Um, And whilst that continues to be as adrift as it currently is, it becomes almost impossible to fix the other stuff. Thank you. Really clear message from both of you there. So thank you so much for joining me today on on the State of Our Nation podcast. And we look forward to sharing your thoughts with the nation. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of the State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www.accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Access Charity One.
At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests.